Investors Chronicle. Welcome to another episode of the Investors Chronicle Interviews podcast. I'm Dan Jones, and I'm very pleased to say that today we're joined by famed value investor Joel Greenblatt. Joel is Managing Director and Co-CIO of Gotham Asset Management. He teaches value investing at Columbia Business School, and he's also the author of many widely read investing books, the most famous arguably being 2005's The Little Book That Beats the Market, in which he set out his magic formula for finding shares. That formula is still used widely today and indeed forms the basis for some of the IC's own stock screens. Joel, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about investment philosophy, the magic formula itself, and the process of searching for good investments, as well as some thoughts on the UK market, perhaps, too. For starters, though, uh, I should say we're recording this podcast on the afternoon of Tuesday, the 14th of March. And in the past few days, there's been quite a febrile atmosphere on markets. Many analysts have been drastically paring back their bets for rate hikes this year in the aftermath of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. But one reason that you in particular don't look at the macro too much is because of the margin of safety, Joel, that you build into your process right from the start. You typically look for investments that can beat a risk-free rate of 6%. And for the past decade, you were probably told that rate was too conservative. But this year, there's been a lot of renewed talk in particular about what kind of discount rates investors should be using, in short, how they should factor in higher interest rates. So can you say a bit about how you consider the concept of the margin of safety, both conceptually and in the current environment in particular? Sure. I think that's a great question. And and I think you framed it well. Taking a look at if you're going to buy a stock uh, over time, are you going to beat the risk-free rate of 6% is the first hurdle that you want to pass. Now, 6% obviously is a lot higher than the risk-free rate's been uh, for a long time. And as you suggested, well, that's a one way to, to put in a margin of safety. Uh, but also, the, that kind of analysis breaks down. If, if interest rates are at 1%, <clears throat> that implies that, oh, well, I guess I can pay 100 times earnings for something. And we know that that probably is not a very conservative way to invest. And so 6% is uh, one way. Say, hey, if I'm going to buy this investment, I'm going to earn quite a bit more than 6% over time uh, because I'm assuming a risk-free rate of 6%. It's just uh, one way to build in a, a margin of safety. And that doesn't mean that the company has to doesn't ha- have to have a 6% earnings yield right now. If you think it's growing, a 6% earnings yield right now would be really good. So that's a little over 16 times earnings. But even if something's earning 4%, uh, if you think earnings are going to double in the next couple of years, well, then you'll be over that 6% rate that we're looking at. It's just a good, quick, and dirty way of looking is how much do I like this thing? In other words, everything is about yield when you, and it's a good way to think about investing. You know, you put your money in your bank, you get a certain return. When you buy a business, it spins off a certain amount of profits every year based, and and it's relative to what you paid for it. So it affects what you pay for it. When you rent a house, you say, well, what would that house cost to buy? And if I rented it out, what could I get for it? That's a good way to decide whether the price makes any sense to you. You know, what is that yield on that rent versus the price of the house? And so it's a good way to look at the whole world of investing, you know, how to compare apples and oranges. You know, what do I pay? What's my yield? And of course, there's a good deal of guessing. 
uh, when you buy a business, what what will that earnings yield be over time? Will it grow? Will it shrink? How solid is it? And those are the questions that you ask as an investor. And so it's a, just a great way to frame the way you look at almost any investment. And so I use, as a rule of thumb, a 6% risk-free rate. That doesn't mean necessarily that if you can beat it, you should buy that business. It's a world of alternatives. And so that's the first hurdle you want to beat. You want to make sure you beat the risk-free rate. And then you look at your alternatives and see, if can I do any better? But that should be the first hurdle that you look at. And this year in particular, you know, notwithstanding the events of the past few days, uh, the risk-free rate has been rising. If it gets to a stage where, you know, where we're at the base rate of, dare I say, 6%, something like that, your risk-free rate, does that change accordingly? Do you tend to even it out at 6% over time? How do you view such situations? Obviously, it's been a long time since you've had to ask those questions. Sure. What I what I wrote in the books, whether it's right or wrong, is you know if the if the risk-free rate at the time you're looking at it is above 6%, I'd use that rate. So if it's 7%, I'd use 7%. When it's below 6%, I never use less than 6%. And it's just a, a way of... Uh, being conservative. It's, it's, it's a good way to frame the question because it makes it very straightforward what you're looking for. And, uh, and a lot of times, you know, I haven't taught at Columbia for a few years, but I did teach there for 23 years. And every year I'd ask my students, what do you do? You know, you're in a business and you don't know exactly, you know, how things are going to play out in the next few years, how technology is going to affect it, how competition will affect the business. You know, what will that earning stream be going forward? And I always say, well, the answer to that is skip that one. You have no business investing. You don't know the answer to those questions and find one you can figure out. And that's an important thing to know. Uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of investments should go in the too hard pile, especially if it's not your area of expertise. Uh, it's not like you have to know the answer to all those. You won't know the answer to most of those. So you have to find areas where you do feel comfortable about those types of questions. We'll come to those two hard piles or we'll return to that in a minute because that isn't an area I'm interested in. But to return to the earnings yield, that, that is, uh, you know, the key part or one of the two key parts of the magic formula. The first being look for companies with good returns on capital, look for companies with good earnings yields and see what comes up. As you say, a big part of that then is working out how those earnings are going to grow. And if you can't do that, that's where the formula helps because it gives you a a big list of companies you can you know, look at in some. But I think you've said in the past and you've said in uh, the little book, for example, you know, that you yourself look at prospective earnings three to four years out in a normal environment to try and work out how those earnings might grow. Uh, and I wondered, given all the events we've seen over recent years, how difficult are you finding that task at the moment in light of the debate about whether this is a normal cycle, you know, post 2008, post the impacts of the pandemic, some of those shifts are rolling off. Does that make it harder to work out what normal is and what normal earnings might be? Yeah, I think it's always hard. It's a good question, but I think it's always hard to figure out what normal earnings will be. You know, what, what part of the cycle are we in and, and what's it going to look like in, in two or three years? And, and, and once again, for most things, you probably won't know the answer to that question. And it's just a normal environment. What we tend to do you know, there's a lot of ways to invest. One, one of the things we're doing now is is buying buckets of companies, trying to be right on average. And one of the things you can do is put together portfolios based on right now, uh, you know, it's always a market of stocks, not a stock market. So in other words, uh, in the United States, for instance, we have a strategy that always tries to reweight the portfolio daily towards the cheapest 20% of our uh, universe. And let's say it's the 
let's say the 1400 largest stocks in the US. If that's our universe, we're always trying to reweight the portfolio times uh, towards the 20% cheapest based on trailing free cash flows the way that we define it relative to what we're paying. So how much free cash flow are we getting relative to the price we're paying? We have a portfolio that uh, always reweights it towards the cheapest 20%. And then we can go back over the last 30 years or so and say, where are we today for that bucket of companies, you know, that cheapest 20% relative to the last 30 years. And when I looked this morning, we were in the 94th percentile towards cheap for the bucket that we could create today uh, for that portfolio, that theoretical portfolio. And that means there's a lot of companies that at least based on trailing earnings, we can buy very good free cash flow yields. And the market's only been cheaper for creating that bucket 6% of the time over the last 30 years. And then you can say, hey, what's happened from the 94th percentile in the past? And the answer to that is, it doesn't say what's going to happen in the future. It says what's happened in the past from this valuation level. The answer is plus 63% over the next two years for that bucket of companies, you know, that's constantly updated. So pretty good opportunity set for that section of the market. We can do the same analysis for the S&P 500, and that's quite a bit different. Still positive. But the S&Ps uh, haven't looked uh, very closely the last few days. But let's say that's closer to the, uh, yeah, I'll give you the answer. Yeah, so that's in roughly the 27th percentile towards expensive uh, over the last 30 years. Two-year forward returns are closer about 17%, not 63%, but 17% for the S&P 500. That's subnormal returns for the last 30 years, but not negative but not nearly the opportunity set presented by the cheapest section. So it's, there's a real dichotomy in opportunity sets. And that's why it's important to look at individual stocks. And, you know, as I said, a market of stocks, not a stock market. It's a well-known saying. And, and now that's very, very important. What kind of index are you buying? And what type of stocks are you buying? And where, is, where are the opportunities in today's market? And that, that gives you an idea. Our definition of value is, cash flow oriented, not low price book, low price sales type uh, definition. And we actually view these as companies that you value and try to buy at a discount. That's our definition of value investing and, and giving a cash flow oriented view. Uh, there are some really great opportunity sets and this type of investing, while it's actually done uh, fine, it hasn't way outperformed the S&P over the last dozen years or so. Uh, but the opportunity set is so, you know, I, I feel the rubber band has stretched for this section of the market to such a degree that the next, you know, two, three, four years should give it a big advantage. And that's that's why it's setting up right now for me. One specific sector I wanted to mention is inevitably tech technology, which, which is an area that interests you. Uh, for many people, obviously, over the past year, there's been a bit of a uh, reality setting in in some ways or, or, you know, having to factor in the process of a different economic environment. It's not necessarily cheap in absolute terms, but is it fair to say you do still see value in, in that sector? And I'm thinking sort of large cap tech in, in particular. Yeah, so there are uh, tech companies that are still growing nicely that, uh, or do have long-term prospects that get into the window of, you know, uh, relatively cheap, let's say. Uh, you know, I mean, it's right now, I would say the Googles of the world or something like that would, uh, on a relative basis, they're not absolutely cheap, but 
relative to the quality of the business. They, uh, they it might be, might well be cheap. Everyone knows that it's uh, being challenged for the first time in a long time in search. And so there's an opportunity there, but they have a great franchise and, you know, it's potentially cheap and, and as part of a portfolio might be a good bet. I, you know, I don't want to opine on that in particular, but people can see that, you know, the, at least the free cash flow yield of some tech businesses get in the, the zone of buying. And there are issues confronting any company that appears uh, to be cheap and, and, the job of an analyst is really to, to look at that and say, you know, is it too much? Uh, what people tend to do, and this is sy- systematically, is say this obvious problem that someone has right ahead of them. I don't want to buy that stock because they have this problem ahead of them and I want to make money in the next year or two and I see this problem. And so what tends to happen on a, not on a systematic basis anyway is people tend to over avoid those companies that have the obvious immediate problems because they want to make money now. And why would you buy something that clearly has a problem right in front of them in the next year or two uh, now? And people tend to over discount that. So a lot of ways to be a value investor. You know, you can buy things after they've fallen or you can buy things that are anticipated uh, that next year or two might be a little tougher than normal. And those tend to be avoided as well. And so there's a systematic bias to, uh, particularly for active managers to make money now, you know, especially professionals, you know, they have investors. And if you want to make money in the next year or two, your happy hunting ground is not usually the companies that have a pile of problems over the next year or two. So they're systematically avoided. Of course. Well, well let's turn to some of the areas which uh, you may find too difficult to analyze, which as, as you referred to earlier is, you know, uh, I think you often refer to circles of competence uh, in terms of, you know, not wanting to, try and do something which is simply too difficult to do. So can you maybe talk about what some of those sectors might be and whether there are more or fewer around at the moment or whether that's kind of a persisting through time type thing in terms of which areas of the market these are? I think that changes through time. I mean, there there are some industries that are uh, macro related and those, I, I, I think everything is hard. You know, the market is... You know, what I would say is it's it's emotional in the short term, but eventually gets it right. And that's one of the things that I promised my students, you know, first day of class, I say, if they do good valuation work, the market will agree with them. I just never tell them when. And so, you know, the, there there are plenty of opportunities because of a, a emotion and news articles and people reacting to other people's reactions and, uh, you know, whole slew of things and and there's nothing super simple uh that's why i think as you put it and buffett puts it you know knowing your circle of competence is important you know i've generally been a generalist i when i was doing special situation investing very concentrated portfolios i really could be very patient because i only owned a few things at a time i only tried to have a few good ideas every you know year if i could have a couple good ideas that that was great uh, and I was always looking for those easy ones, I guess, you know, looking as Buffett would put it, the one foot hurdles, not trying to jump over the 10 foot one. And then those don't come along. And even if they come along, you're probably not going to recognize them. So you're always turning over a lot of rocks, uh, looking in places other people aren't to find those kind of easy ones. And I think that's how when I had a concentrated book, 
you know, I've been together with my uh, partner, uh, business partner, Rob Goldstein, since 1989. And, you know, we would just look under a lot of rocks to find the few really uh, good ones. And so uh, I don't think it's easy. I think uh, there are times in which certain things become easier or not. You know, uh, when I was thinking out loud, given what's going on now, I was thinking banks. You know, in banks, you don't really know what their loan book looks like. Specifically, you, you have hints. Uh, but it is a leveraged business, kind of a black box. And you can look at, uh, one of the things you used to look at is, well, what kind of deposit franchise do they have? You know, in other words, do they have an ability to raise money at low cost for some particular reason? Because, you know, money is obviously the ultimate fungible commodity. And, uh, or do they have some kind of business where, uh, you know, particular market where they're loaning to that they're specialists and they do it better or lower cost than anybody else. And, and that's really, and there aren't that many banks that have that advantage. Um, but once again, uh, that was coming to mind when you said, you know, what's it, what's in the too hard pile. I mean, often yeah. they are, but sometimes those present opportunities and you can really see the franchises there, but they're more rare. Certainly at the moment, I think, yeah, certainly this week too hard perhaps, but you refer to the difficulty, and obviously for a lot of value investors over the past decade or since the financial crisis, it, it has been a difficult time until the past couple of years, arguably. A lot of people seem to almost give up on the tenets of value investing and convert to becoming growth investors uh, over that time. Did you ever, you certainly haven't done that, but did you ever worry about the tenets of what you were doing or think, you know, of course, the zero interest rate environment wasn't going to persist forever, and we we know that now more certain than more certainly than ever. But did you ever start to think, well, you know, am I in trouble here? Is this a new paradigm during during those years? Well, I think the better way to answer it is also just steal from Warren Buffett again, which is growth is part of value, and uh, all investing is value investing, right? You're you're valuing a business and trying to buy it at a discount. I think that measuring how you're doing should be done a little different. I, I wrote another book called The uh, Big Secret, and I always say it's still a big secret because no one bought that book. And by the way, The Big Secret was patience. Uh, but but I wrote about the fact that if you had missed out on you know, some really big names, uh, you know, the Fang names or something like that, which were way outperforming uh, many other names, and they became such a big part of the market, if you didn't have those, maybe you wouldn't beat certain averages you know, had a big component of those, yet you were still able to beat the risk-free rate uh, while taking low risk. It may or may not look like you're you're doing well at a particular time, but investing is truly figuring out what something's worth, paying less, getting a nice return. And that's what we try to do all the time. Uh, sometimes it'll be in favor because you own some of these popular stocks that may crash and burn or not. I mean, uh, I will tell you a story that I started uh, Gotham in uh, 1985. My partner, Rob Goldstein, joined me in 1989. We returned our outside capital at the end of 94, but continued to run our portfolios. And in 1998, was our first year we lost money. We were down 5%, but the market was up, uh, S&P was up 28% that year. So not a good year to lose 5%. The next year in 99, market was up another 21%. We were down 5% again. Uh, second year, we lost money since 1985. In 2000, the market was finally down a little bit, I think nine or 10%. We're up 115%. We didn't do anything different during those three years. 
the market finally recognized the work that we had done in 98 and 99, finally got paid in 2000. I don't think idiots in 1998 and 99, all of a sudden geniuses in 2000. It was just the market decided that dichotomy was historic in what people favored at that particular time and what people didn't like. And, you know, what I was suggesting at the top of the show was not that this is anything like the internet bubble, but that uh, the opportunity set, there's a big dichotomy in the opportunity set out there, uh, I think, between uh, individual opportunities in cheaper businesses and how much they're out of favor relative to popular businesses. So there is a dichotomy right now. Uh, I don't think it's anywhere near what it was in 98, 99 to 2000, but I think it rhymes. And I think there's some nice opportunities out there. So uh, we're pretty excited about what we do anyway. I want to move on to the, the magic formula in a bit more detail. And for the past few years, when we at the ICE apply the magic formula screen, uh, many of the highest quality stocks that it throws up haven't scored highly on the value score and, and vice versa, leading the ranking system to highlight cyclical stocks as a sort of compromise. Does this mean the screen missed the big story of the past decade, high growth tech stocks? Or is this just a quirk of the UK market to which we apply the method? So first, let's talk about the magic formula uh, that I wrote about in the book, which uh, looks for companies that we can buy cheaply using a, a crude metric that says, how much cash flow are we getting for that business relative to the price we're paying? Are we getting a nice uh, free cash flow yield uh, relative to the price we're paying? Uh, the second element of it is, is when the business invests its money, what kind of returns does it get investing that money, uh, reinvesting that money? You know, it takes its earnings, reinvesting, what does it get? Now, it's a very crude metric because some companies are asset light. They don't need a lot of reinvestment. It's not that, that telling, but it does tell you that, hey, this is an asset light business, then that's, that's pretty good. We don't need a lot of capital. We get to keep most of our earnings. Now, I'll tell you a little secret about the magic formula, which is the reason I wrote the book is because uh, when my partner and I did the original research on those two metrics, we didn't spin the computer a thousand times. We just said, hey, what's a crude metric? You know, we, we, I had originally done some work when I was in college with some of my friends on Ben Graham stock picking, which was buying stocks below liquidation value. And we'd evolved uh, fairly quickly into the way Buffett looks at the world, which is not just cheap, but if I can buy a good business cheap, even better. And the idea behind the magic formula was to combine good and cheap. We just stuck our finger in the air and said 50-50. We said, what's a good metric for good return on tangible capital? What's a good metric for cheap, you know, high free cash flow yield? And so rather than spin the computer a, a thousand times, the very first test we did was weighting those two things 50-50. The results were phenomenal. And so I wrote a book about it because what a great lesson, you know, uh, buying good and cheap. It wasn't trying to find the optimal portfolio of all time. It, it, in, a, in a way, it's more powerful by saying, no, I didn't try a million different metrics and, and then, you know, do a thousand of them. And, oh, here's the best one, you know, looking backwards. It was, this was the very first test we ran, okay? Now, it doesn't matter whether a company earns 20% returns on tangible capital or 100% returns on tangible capital. They're both pretty good. Earning 20% on your reinvestment or 100% is good. How much can you reinvest in that uh, business, right? If it's asset light, you can't invest much. 
So I'd rather have a business that I could invest in at 20 or 30% forever rather than something that earned 100% but doesn't need any money. Once again, it was the very first thing we tested. It was very crude. It worked really well. It illustrated the great point that Buffett teaches, which is good and cheap. And so I wrote it up in a book as a, what a great lesson, but it wasn't a matter of finding the very best metrics that, you know, but what it did tell us is, you know what, we don't use crude metrics or crude databases to pick stocks. This tells you that the not trying very hard method, you know, using some crude metrics works really well. What if we try a little bit? And that's, that's how we got into more diversified investing. And it was just been a fun journey, you know, trying to better that. So I still believe very much in the magic formula, but I'm just telling you how it came about. I think something interesting to know is the way that we calculate things. Uh, 30 years ago, the returns on tangible capital for the S&P were about 20%. Now they're closer to 70%. And that's very important because if you want to grow your business 5%, if you take 25% of your earnings, you earn a dollar, you take 25% of that, Invested at 20%, you can grow 5% by reinvesting in your business. If you're earning 70% returns on tangible capital, you only have to take, you take a dollar earnings, you only need 7% of that dollar to reinvest at 70% and grow 5%. So really, when you have an asset like business, uh, you get to keep, today you'd get to keep in the S&P 93 cents of the dollar in earnings and still grow 5%. Uh, 30 years ago, you only got to keep 75 cents. So, you know, all the metrics that you use for earnings yields and everything else, when you have an asset like business, you can, and but you can still grow at the same rate, you get to keep more your earnings, your earnings are more valuable, they're, you know, you know, more than 20% more valuable. So very careful when you're comparing, you know, historic numbers, uh, these are, the world has moved more asset light. You know, it's the uh, apples and Googles of the world. And those are where the values are. So it's, it's, it's very interesting to see how that's, that's moved. Now, that portfolio I mentioned where we're just always waiting towards the 20% cheapest. Uh, when you look at the theoretical returns since uh, we started doing that live, you know, 2010, uh, that strategy, that's actually beaten the S&P since we started without buying Amazon and, and uh, you know, Apple. You know, it would consistently miss those, but made up for it. Nothing wrong with what we're doing over time. And like I said, it depends what your benchmarks are. There will be periods where there's a few big companies or, or, or a theme that works really well for a while. If you don't have that theme, you're going to trail a, an index or something of that nature. But if you're consistently way outperforming the risk-free rate, if you're uh, getting very nice returns, that you're well compensated for the risk you're taking, uh, you're also doing well. So uh, and then it, then it depends what period you're looking over to compare returns. You know, how long are you doing this for a lifetime? How's it going to work out? You know, you're doing this for 10 or 20 years. Not that anyone cares about that, but that really is a way that you can consistently follow something that makes sense, which is the most important thing for investors to keep in mind. And looking at the the variants of the the formula, you know, you, you mentioned you know, some of those you look at internally. When you take the return on capital, you know, you're using EBIT, for, exam for example, something like that. Given the way that companies often try to manipulate stated profits, is there a, is there value in looking at cash flow in particular to replace EBIT as a you know alternative way of using the formula? Uh, have you examined that kind of possibility in more detail? Uh, notwithstanding what you've just said about uh, you know the magic formula being the first thing you tried and then going from there. 
Yeah, so it's it's a little harder. Uh, um, that's a good question. The numbers that are usually manipulated is some kind of uh, adjusted EBIT or adjusted EBITDA without even thinking of what my capex are. You know, my capital spending is, and so that's where companies get into trouble. You know, it's it's non-GAAP uh, adjustments that they make to to say, well, if we didn't have any expenses, we would have earned this. You know, or whatever. I don't know what the adjustments are, but. We have a big research team and we start at reported numbers and then look at, you know, if a company takes a write-off, that's not, they didn't take that loss really in that quarter. They didn't lose all that money. It was spent over a period of years. You know, what did they really earn going backwards and, you know, things of that nature. And that's the type of analysis we do to decide, you know, what are, what are real, what is real cash flow? You know, what periods do these expenses belong in? Do they do serial write-offs? Every time, anytime they, something goes wrong, they just write it off. And is this happen all the time? And is that really an expense of the business? So those are the judgment calls that an analyst does. I, I appreciate that you use the magic formula, and I think it's being used correctly when uh, you use it for two purposes. One is to buy a, a large bucket of companies and try to be right on average. The other would be to create a list of things that might be cheap. Let me take a look. Let me take a deeper dive. On each one, here's a list of opportunity, an opportunity set for me to look at and take a deeper dive. So that was really, it was presented for two reasons. One is a happy hunting ground for good ideas. The other would be buying a bucket of companies that on average look attractive on certain metrics. And on average, uh, you know, if you can buy above average companies at below average prices, that was the idea. But you don't know which ones are going to be right and which are wrong. And, you know, the truth is, I don't know if it's 99% or 99.9% of investors don't know how to value businesses. And if you don't know how to value a business, you can't really make intelligent investments. And most people can't do it. It's a, it's a, it's a hard job. People aren't, they have day jobs or, you know, there, there's an emotional component because market prices uh, make you emotional. They're all over the place because they respond to emotions. And so people get uh, very, uh, very thrown by them. I, I once taught a uh, ninth grade class and I was trying to teach them this lesson. What is the, you know, how does the stock market work? And I came in, I've told the story before, but I came in with a big jar of jelly beans and passed it around the room and I handed out three by five cards. I don't know if you know what those are in England, it's three inches by five inches, but anyway, and I asked them to fill in how many jelly beans they thought were in the jar. Uh, and I collected the three by five cards. Then I went around the room one by one and I pointed to a student and I said, how many jelly beans do you think are in the jar? And I said, you can keep your original guess or you can change it, completely up to you. And one by one, I went around the room and collected those guesses. So the three by five guess averaged to uh, 1,771 jelly beans and there were actually 1,776 jelly beans in the jar. When I went around the room asking each individual uh, student what they thought. That guess averaged to 850 jelly beans. And I explained to the students that the second guess, the 850, was really the stock market because everybody knows what they just heard, uh, who they just talked to, what they read in the paper, what they saw on television, whatever, you know, what they looked on their phone. I don't know. They're all influenced by everything around them. And their guess wasn't really good. It was, uh, it was influenced by too many things. When they were cold and calculating, you know, counting rows and looking through and independent, very importantly, they were much, much better. And that's not the stock market. But the idea of the analyst is to be that cold and calculating independent thinker who really does the work and, and tries to do the valuation work. And you'd be much better off. Hard to do. 
because everyone is exposed and uh, to the outside. And I thought that was a great experiment, which I probably won't repeat because it worked too well the first time I tried it. Uh, but it, but it's an important lesson for them, and I think it's uh, important for me to to say it again uh, anytime I I talk that uh, markets emotional, and you got to be cold and calculated. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of markets, and in particular individual markets, I want to turn to the UK. Uh, obviously, the important market for our audience, uh, and in the UK market, certainly among large caps, there tends to be quite a large crossover between value investing, however you want to define it, and income stocks, the big dividend payers, uh, income investing is very popular over here. Uh, How do you tend to think about stocks that yield a decent amount? Is that just a nice bonus for you? Does it, I'm sure it does some occasions imply that growth prospects are actually a bit poor? Or is it something that doesn't really enter your thinking too much when you're analyzing companies? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, it doesn't enter my thinking. I mean, uh, there's a lot of what management decides to do. Uh, We look at total return, where we look at, okay, so a company has generates this kind of cash flow, they're doing smart things with it. If they're reinvesting it well, I don't need a dividend. If they have a lot of prospects, I don't need a dividend. If they don't have a lot of prospects or the business is asset light, they don't need the money, I'm, I would be happy to get it. You know, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure what the tax situation is there, but I'm agnostic. Okay, I will look at how does the company allocate its capital? How does management allocate its capital? How is management incented? I don't think making a decision to keep your dividend high or anything or your dividend yield high or your business is particularly a smart metric to use if I were management. It's what I earn this cash. What do I do with it? If I have good things to do with it, great, reinvest it. If I don't have great things to do with, great. I earned a lot of cash. I don't need a lot of money. Let me give it back to shareholders. You can do it by share buybacks. People are confused about it in this country for some reason, my country for some reason, won't say who, whether they buy back stocks or whether they give dividends. This is returning cash to shareholders in a way that makes sense. Just for those who don't know, when you buy back your stock, if you think the uh, stock is trading, if a company is buying back its own stock, and the stock is trading below uh, uh, the obvious value of the business, might be a good idea to buy it back. You know, if some, one of your partners wants to sell to you cheaply, great. If they don't, that does not always the case. If the stock is richly valued, uh, maybe it's better to give a dividend and not to uh, overpay is the best way to put it. So if you're underpaying for something, it's a good idea to buy it. If you're overpaying, bad idea. It's as simple as that. It's not a, a all good or all bad or dividends are good and buybacks are bad or anything like that. It's uh, people who have that debate. Uh, I think Buffett just called them economic illiterates or some version of that. And that's what I would agree with. In the UK as well, certainly in the last few weeks, there's been a lot of angst uh, over here about you know, certain companies moving their listings to the U.S., uh, there's been talk, obviously, of years of underperformance pre-2022 as well in terms of the UK market. So as a value investor, a bit one who's largely concentrated on the US market, you know, do you see opportunities in the UK market? Do you see that discount being unwarranted or warranted, perhaps? You know, how do you view the opportunities here, if at all? It's not typically what we look at you know, in isolation. So we look at individual positions and we do run uh, non-U.S. portfolios, but uh, I haven't, I I don't know the answer to your question. I suspect that we would be agnostic whether something is listed 
in England or listed here if it's the same business. It's where is their income coming from? Where are their revenues coming from? And, and sure. what you're describing is a typical potential special situation where uh, if people are avoiding uh, the UK market for some reason, that would tend to perhaps uh, give more opportunities over time. Uh, the market will eventually get it right. And so if just being listed in the UK is a negative, doesn't make the company that is listed there worth less. It might trade for less, uh, and that could be an opportunity, but it doesn't make the business worth less. You really have to look at where their revenues and earnings are coming from and you know, evaluate it that way. And that's the way typically over time we would do it. So if what you're describing is true, then I would use that as an opportunity rather yeah. than a problem. My final UK-related uh, question is about spin-offs, of which we've, we've had a couple in recent years uh, from GSK and Melrose coming up soon in the domestic market. But uh, I noticed in the past you, you've been quite interested in the spin-off as a, as a concept and as a, uh, a structure that can offer some value to, to investors. Is that still a philosophy to which you subscribe, you know, seeing particular value in, in spin-offs in certain cases when companies spin out part of their, their divisions? My first book I wrote is called You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, and about 40 or 50% of it was about spinoffs. The question is why it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing another book, and the example I used uh, for spinoffs is uh, if there was a law that said that every time you bought a house in New York, you also had to buy one in Cleveland. And every time you bought a house in Cleveland, you also had to buy one in New York. The combined value of those two houses would be at one price. If all of a sudden the law were repealed, and now the highest and best buyer for the house in New York could just go buy the house in New York and the highest and best buyer for the house in Cleveland could just buy the house in Cleveland. The combined value of those two houses would go up, right? Because you're not forced to buy something you don't want. And that's really one of the great things that happens in a spinoff. The highest and best buyer for each one of those businesses can come in and buy it. Um, so uh, that's one thing. The other thing is, is that companies don't typically cut their empire in half or a third, or just get rid of assets that they control. They're usually conglomerating and, and adding to their kingdom, you know, management. When you're separating, you're doing something usually selfless for yourself and, and to help shareholders. So it's a nice indicator that you think, why would you do it other than you think that shareholders will come off better off this way, or the businesses will operate better, or you'll be able to incent management better, or there's a million reasons why spinoffs make sense and why value is created usually in a spinoff transaction. Also, the opportunity obviously for spinoffs is always there because these are now two companies that have never traded by themselves. No one's looked at them by themselves, but the shareholder of the combined companies is getting one of the companies they didn't want, probably. And they're generally now selling. And there, so there's an opportunity there too, okay? Where there's supply, uh, there's also typically when a company goes public, there's a big roadshow. People are telling everyone how great the business is. Companies don't tend to go public when things are going badly. You know, it's look like they're, they might go badly in the future. I better get out now. You know, I might, might as well raise some money now. And that's not happening in spinoffs either. So you're getting a new company that is not hyped, is not necessarily, uh, you know, maybe it's undervalued or misvalued or not even followed. I could write a, at least half a book about that, and I did. And so uh, that's the answer to your question. You know, yeah. I, I like it's a fertile area to look for opportunity there. They don't. They could be overpriced too because they're not followed well. 
They could be underpriced or overpriced. I would just say it's a fertile ground to look for opportunity. The the flip side of that maybe is the as you alluded to the conglomerate, which is something that you know the likes of Warren Buffett are quite closely associated with in terms of their investment interests. I'm presuming that your interest in spinoffs doesn't mean you're never interested in conglomerates, uh, or you see them as having flaws. Are there you know conglomerates in which you're interested you know as a conventional investment? Sometimes there's hidden gems buried in a conglomerate. You know, one company's making money, one company's losing money. People just tend to put a multiple on the net. You know, there's there's a lot of opportunities there. There aren't very many Warren Buffetts. Sure, conglomerates can be great too if they if they have someone at the top that is really good at this. It's it's more the exception than the rule. Certainly, Warren Buffett has been, you know, one of the greatest ca- capital allocators of all time, and you know, for me, great role model. You know, if I were teaching someone about investing, if you don't read everything that you can about Warren Buffett and the fact that he's been willing to share his wisdom over the years, you know, what a role model for everyone and what a great way to learn. Well, that's a good place to end. We have unfortunately run out of time, but uh, Joel, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's been great to hear from you and and learn from uh, your thoughts on the market. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will feel the same. Thank you very much. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.